Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by Dropbox, trusted by people in over 4 million businesses worldwide to keep their files safe, synced, and easy to share with anyone. Try Dropbox for business free for 14 days at dropbox.com business. And by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash money. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Making Something New edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill. The blogger from Math Babe. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. Um, and because Jordan is on honeymoon, we have reached deep onto the panoply bench. <laughs> very deep. Very, very <laughs> deep. To find um, the one and only Jim Ledbetter, host of what's your podcast? Ink Uncensored. Ink un- wow. Because you're allowed to swear. Yes. On uh, we panoply podcast. I've got some good news. You can swear here too. Excellent. <laughs> Kathy is the queen of the swearing. Thank you. She's she's very good at saying pre- rude things about. I prefer Empress Southampton real estate. So Jim is basically the person who knows everything about everything. So I'm looking forward to this being a Jim led better monologue while I get to have a little nap. Thank you, Felix. <laughs> In the corner. Um, we, we got a cut for you. He's going to tell us all about uh, the reasons why Verizon seems to think it's a good idea to spend $4.5 billion to buy AOL. Do you remember AOL? We'll talk about AOL. Um, we're also going to talk about the art auctions this week because it's my podcast and I can. Um, but first, Kathy, you have babies on the mind. I do. I, I, in fact, um, I, I was really um, struck by an article this week um, in the Wall Street Journal about IVF, which stands for in vitro fertilization. It turns out there's a big boom in this, and I think it makes a lot of sense. So just um, just to be clear what IVF is, um, it's when you, like an egg and a sperm are connected outside people's bodies in a Petri dish and then sort of grown for a few days and then implanted in a woman's um, in the uterus. Is this what in the 70s we used to call test, test tube, tube babies? Yes. In oh. fact, the first test tube baby um, was born in 1978. So that was like the, f- the first thing. But now it's like 
well, 175,000 this year um, of these IVF treatments. And that's growing. And it's growing sort of linearly from the beginning, from 1970. It's just incredibly, I mean... It and was, is this because people are having babies later? There's lots of 40-year-old women who find it hard to get pregnant? Yes. The, the rate of, um, of women having babies in their late 30s has doubled since 20, uh, 1988. But the the rate of women in their early the first half of their forties having babies has like gone up by a factor of eight. So I, I don't know, which that, isn't to say it's a lot, but it's just you know small numbers get bigger faster. I don't know that they measure this, but I suspect that the um, increasing age of fathers also plays a role. Mm. So uh, one of the things that's interesting, and Felix, you mentioned this um, when we were talking about this over email, is that the actual price of IVF has actually gone down a little bit. As um, as measured by the average, I I, I wonder about. So what those do you think statistics. is going on? And you because I, I'm I mean on one on the one hand it makes sense it's a relatively new technology it's becoming a mass technology yeah and when you do something more and more you start getting economies of scale yeah it hasn't come down enormously it's come down a little bit in um, nominal terms uh, the numbers which I kind of backed out from the Wall Street Journal article basically said that in real terms, in today's dollars, it's gone down from about $30,000 per treatment in 2000 to about $20,000 today. It's still expensive. Yeah, sure yeah. it is. And that's one throw. I mean, most, most people are throwing the dice two, three, four, five times. Um, so it really adds up to quite a lot of money. So what are the what is actually so what is the actual chances that it actually works on the first time? This is this is the amazing thing. So they will they will give you a set of statistics that that relates to your age, your husband's age, etc. Um, and the numbers are you know depending on your age, somewhere between twenty and forty percent that it will be effective on on any given throw. So if you you know if you're throwing three or four times, you got a, a pretty good chance. However, the average statistics are sort of meaningless because yeah. they're because they're adding in you know people from uh, clinics where it's probably not done very well to places like in Manhattan where it's done extremely well and the success, success rate is off the charts. One of the interesting things about this, and and if it's not clear, um, I did go through this with I my see, wife yeah. some years and ago. And you even use the lingo. Like like throw. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a scientific term. Um, the the at least in in New York State the statistics are are publicly available. You can you can look at any given doctor at any given given clinic and they have to publish. And it fascinates me that like for all that this is now what I just a minute ago said is a completely sort of mass technology which people are doing hundreds of thousands of times a year. You're saying that there's actually this isn't just a sort of plug and play thing that there are some people who do it really well and some people who do it much less that's, well. That's right. And and the other thing is that the the, the 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 science is growing by leaps and bounds. There's almost some kind of, you know, Moore's law uh, at work. Um, so such that if you if you read a peer reviewed scientific paper on IVF technology, by the time you read it, it's out of date. The, wow. the science is just so, so that also maybe explains why the price isn't going down that much because we're actually being more and more technologically advanced and sort of, you know, the price of the basic stuff would have come down a lot if it wasn't for the fact that we spent a lot of money on making it better. Yeah, there's probably a long tail of exactly what the treatments are. But one of the things that just... Is that a sperm reference? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just saying that many, probably the vast majority of people go through stuff that was, we knew about 10 years ago, but then there are a few people who go through special, extra special things. One thing that's interesting that I read um, about was that it's become kind of like a weird financial instrument. Like you can not only pay for throws, but you can pay for many throws, which I'm just, what what I mean by that is attempts to get pregnant using IVF. Um, but you can even enter into a contract where you pay for a certain amount and it's like you, they set the price, but you're guaranteed or your money back. So it's a it's actually a pretty complicated financial instrument. Hmm. And But in order to get that price, they actually give you a thorough exam. And, and, it's you like know, life insurance. A physical yeah. exam and your husband too. And it, it, of course, it, it depends on your, your age, but it depends yeah. on all sorts of other things too. So it's kind of this weird thing where you sort of financialized your womb you know, in, in in all other aspects, physical aspects of your body, which is a weird aspect to it. There are many weird aspects to it, uh, um, among which uh, the the dramatic inconsistency in insurance coverage for the procedures. So just for example, when I 
um, did this several years ago, I was employed by the Washington Post company. And our health insurance provider was Aetna. And our policy allowed for two, a maximum of two procedures that they would pay, I don't know, 95% of it. They basically paid the whole thing. Um, a friend of mine who was uh, at the New York Times, also with Aetna, they paid for zero. Uh, same same company, same city, uh, and it's just a, a discrepancy in, in in policy. There's there's lots of states where you, it's not it's not guaranteed. I think the journal said there are 15 out of 50 states where they're supposed to cover. You know, insurance insurers are supposed to cover some version of this. Um, there is a different framework in the EU, um, and this is how crazy it gets. You consider like going to Ireland for IVF treatments or whatever because um, the National Health Service is more generous. Although there's a cutoff point at a certain age, they won't pay for the procedure anymore. More. Um, Israel has a, a totally different policy. It's like the, it's it, 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 partly because the technology is new, partly because the demand for it was modest in the beginning. I don't think there is a uniformly um, acceptable way of paying for this, covering for this, and, uh, and a kind of consensus uh, from society about whether this is a, a rational use of healthcare uh, money or not. Right. You know, I mean, or is it healthcare? You see, I I'm, I kind of look at this a bit weirdly, and I ask myself, compared to the cost of having a baby. Yeah, you yeah. know, like in general, the cost of bringing up a child, especially if you're doing it in a place like Manhattan. Yeah, you know, we're not talking. It's just. It seems to me like this is a bit like daycare, really. It's Even so, yeah. let involved me, in having a baby. That's a really good point. But let me just also throw in though that there's this there's a a conflict in some sense. You're 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 basically being pushed to take this treatment as soon as possible because the longer you wait, the harder it is. Right, but. You're all, it also costs substantial amounts of money. So, like, you have this thing, like, wait until you have the money, but don't wait at all. Well, so you're saying that this has become financialized and there's yeah. all these financial products around it. Presumably, those involve good old-fashioned payment plans. Yes, they do, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the IVF um, clinics seem to be paired up with these loan loan officers, uh, and which is, you know... Its own thing. It's pretty crazy. And are, there, are there subprime IVF loans? I was just thinking of futures market. A- <laughs> Somebody needs to securitize these things. Um, it brings up another a related issue. On going back to the insurance discussion, which is that not everyone is doing this because um, they're old, they waited too long to have kids or whatever. They're like having trouble conceiving. Some of them are doing it. Um, because there's actually like Tay-Sachs carriers in you know, and so. It, 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 what they do is they they um, fertilize these eggs, and then they check before implanting them whether they're a carrier or that they're going to get sick and die. So that sounds like a more of a sort of medical. I guess it's a sort of. But even so, it's not. Co- it's like not required to be covered under Obamacare, which is kind of an interesting and questionable decision. Um, so, but of course, the other thing, and you're going back to the different nations and their different policies around this, is like. To what extent do we care about our fertility rate as a nation? Right. right. I mean, that's what it comes. It's basically a political question. And I think, and and the answer there, especially in Europe, is you care very much. And in places or like should. Singapore, you yeah. care very much. And you're desperate for you know the the fertility rate to rise, and it's down below replacement rate in a lot of these countries. In the U.S., by contrast, we have a fertility rate which is significantly above replacement still, and it's maybe less important that you know American women have babies. Yeah, and again, when it when it comes to sort of you know rationing healthcare, um, the the reality is this is a procedure used almost exclusively by the upper middle class and and the wealthy. It is not uh, it is not something that that I think you know people from, even in Europe. No, I'm talking about in the United States. Right. Uh, and 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 so you know there is kind of a question in in my mind. You know do. Should should insurance pay for a third procedure, a fourth procedure, a fifth procedure? At what at what point is it? You know, indulgent or 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 uh, you know. At what point would, are would, we would, basically throwing you know state subsidized, taxpayer subsidized money at rich people or, or, to, pri- or private subsidized money? I mean, yeah. it's all it's all socialized one way yeah. or the other uh, to 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 just indulge their desire for the seventeenth. Yeah, and, and there's no and I'm I'm it's a rhetorical question. There is I don't have an answer, right. um, but I do I I could sympathize with someone who would say you know the seventh procedure, man, you're you're on your own right. uh, because because, because there, all, there all, have to all be better procedures ways. have to be rationed somehow. Right. There's no way you can give everyone everything they want. So before we move on, we're going to move on, Jim, to your amazing analysis presentation of the your. your Jim has brought a PowerPoint presentation on AOL Verizon. <laughs> Squint really hard, people. It has it has bullet points and everything. So 
We will get to that. But first, we are going to talk to you about our sponsor. Because yet again, I'm excited about this. We're being sponsored by Dropbox for Business, which is Dropbox. Yay! Jim likes Dropbox. I I enjoy a good Dropbox. (laughs) (laughs) But we all all enjoy a good Dropbox. I mean, I just start using it sort of almost without thinking about it because otherwise I have no idea which computer I'm going to be on at any given time. And if I put something on one computer and I need to open it on another computer. Life in the cloud. Email things to yourself. Yeah. Who does that anymore? Just I do. Use, I totally I do. do that. Yeah. Stop, <laughs> stop it, people. Just use Dropbox. It's much cleaner. Anyway, we all either use Dropbox or feel like we should use Dropbox or know that ultimately it's a really good service. And so the next step is for our, our employers to encourage us to use Dropbox for everything professional and work-related. And that's really easy, too, because there's this thing called Dropbox for Business. It gives the employers everything they need to sort of keep an eye on what's going on within the business while being incredibly intuitive to all of the employees because the employees are using it already. My favorite thing is the e-discovery, so that if you get sued, then you can find what people were Dropboxing each other <laughs> within your company, which I don't know whether why people you know think this is a good thing, but this is actually something you need to have in business, so it's a good thing. So go try it out for free. You get 14 days of free Dropbox for business at dropbox.com slash business. Jim, tell us Felix. about four and a half billion dollars, yeah. the number of the in, week. In cash. Um, so I think the AOL-Verizon merger is extremely interesting for two reasons. One, it forces us to think about Verizon in a different way. And two, it forces us to recall that AOL exists, uh, which I think uh, you would be forgiven if you had forgotten that it exists. And when I started to look into it, one of the questions that, that came to mind is what is AOL? Yeah. What, what is AOL today? So, so when what, what what we know about AOL, there you know is is that there are three in my mind there are three things which AOL does. Kathy, what what, what first rings to mind when you think um, of AOL? CDs sent to my house right. in the eighties, <laughs> yeah, nineties, nineties. So, so, 90s, 90s oh, 90s, so 90s. it seems to me that so there is famously this incredibly lucrative yet mildly evil cash flow at AOL, yeah, of a bunch of like. 80-year-old people who might actually be dead at this point. Approximately 2.2 million people Um, still use AOL uh, as an internet service provider. Who who use AOL as an internet service provider. What fascinates me about this is that the overwhelming majority of them have broadband. They don't use it for dial-up access. Right. But they think that they need to keep on paying because they have an AOL email address. Yeah. They do now, not. In some wow. in some cases, there are there are places where you can't get broadband. It's sort of a last mile thing that that, that that people still need the AOL dial up. But I think you're right. I think it's mostly legacy and it's shrinking. You know, but it's still it's a that's a how six, much of their revenue stream is it's, coming it's from that? Six hundred million dollars a year. Um, but that's not the largest source of AOL's revenue. Do you know what the largest source of AOL's revenue is? Can I guess? Is? Please. Ad tech? Yes. Uh, it's all about the ad tech. It's, yes. It is, the, the largest source of revenue for AOL is third-party advertising. They are essentially helping other publishers fill their ad inventory using mostly, you know, it's programmatic buy, it's, it's, it's banner ads, some, some search ads, so this but it's is, not taking place on AOL properties. It's not taking place on the Huffington no. Post. It's not taking place nope. on now, Gadget. Th- th- no, those, those exist too. But, uh, the, but the main the, thing the, the largest is selling single ads. Source of is, is, is selling if I have ads an ad on Fusion, it might be served up by AOL. And that's technology. probably, let's call it $1.5, $1.6 billion a year. Of, now, presumably, of again, this is a tiny fraction of what you know Google does with with it's it's a tiny fraction of what, it's a f- tiny fraction of what Yahoo does i mean it's AOL's really a bit player in this market which is one of the reasons why i'm having trouble wrapping my head around the more um, excitable uh, colleagues of ours in the press who are saying you know this is a new era for Verizon it heralds a future of video on your phone and on your mobile device that will be you know wonderfully served with ads because we need more ads on the video videos that we watch. Um, and I kind of read these, I'm James Stewart in, in, in the New York Times, for example, and I read these pieces and think, maybe, 
Um, uh, certainly, they're 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 giving Verizon an expertise it doesn't otherwise possess. I I, I see that. I see the sort of strategic fit. Um, but as you point out, I don't see. That, okay, because I, 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 I want to explain it. I want to explain it. Okay, explain I'm the why data Verizon nerd. wants to sell ads. Why do they want in on that business? Well, look at this. This is the way to think about it. Um, AOL has this ad business. It's not a tiny business, but it's a tiny part of the overall market, but it's still a pretty big business. But they, they can't... And growing. They would, and it's growing. 20% a um, year. And it's invisible to people, which is why we don't know about yep. AOL. But the point is that they'd like to sell their ads for a lot more money. Right. Right now they're selling kind of shitty ads for shitty months. Yeah, I, mean, I assume programmatic buys are somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to $3 per thousand. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that if you can target effectively, then programmatic ad buys can actually bring in more money than old-fashioned, you know, selling ad buys, depending on how how like narrowly you can target the audience. And the idea, which I've been trying to get my brain around for most of this week, has been this idea that Verizon has, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 75 and 100 million customers in the U.S. and has a lot of information about those customers and it can therefore somehow combine that information yes. with the AOL technology to be able to target ads at very specific Verizon users. That's exactly what I was about to say. Thank you for articulating it. The point is that Verizon has all this data about their users <clears throat> that they don't know what to do with. They basically are, have been they've been pairing up with advertisers to try to monetize it. But what they really like to do is find an advertiser with a long, larger reach, and AOL is that. So they're both they're complementing each other. Verizon has has data that almost nobody else has, which mm-hmm. is like very very good mobile information, which Google and Facebook all want. And they they try to get it. Facebook, for example, tries to get it by making people up, um, get a Facebook app and log in. And then while they're logged in, they can steal all the information from the person who's using that app. But Verizon gets to have all that information for anyone who's ever using their phone. And the question is whether they can link it up with your online browser and then once they can, they have all this information about what you do online on and your so computer then, and, and so, your phone. And so the idea is that if I'm just using an app or surfing a website on my fo- on my Verizon phone, then the app or the website that I'm using, there will be some really smart back-end technology and will say, ah, I see it's a Verizon phone. So rather than serving up some generic ad at everyone else who's using this website, we're going to target to you, the very specific Verizon user, a very specific ad which people will pay lots of money for. Way more money, like on the order of 100 times more money, depending on what kind of ad it is. So two two thoughts. One is that um, the, the best ad-serving technology in the world on a mobile device um, is still something that I think you know, 99.8% of people are going to ignore. I suspect that the only people who actually click on ads are children uh, using using iPads. Um, and the second thing is, it's not it's not clear why in order to get that kind of technology, I, I can see its, its use value, um, why you need to own the company, why, why these things aren't available, as it were, as a service. Why can't they just license probably uh, AOL's technology because Verizon has four and a half billion dollars lying around and it doesn't see anything better to do with the money. Yeah. I, I'm not gonna. I, I don't understand why they bought it, nor do I understand why four point four billion was the right price. But I do want to make the point that what I think what they're thinking was they know that you just walked by, you know, Eddie Bauer. And you went inside because GPS, you know, because Verizon knows exactly where you are. Is there, is there an any power to go into it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying you, they know where you are. Yeah. Then they, they don't have to target you on your phone. They could target you on your browser. That's the point. AOL bra- targets you on your browser. What so when world, you get back to your computer, they're oh, like, you hey, you computer? just went to, we I just see. noticed you yeah. went to Eddie Bauer. Yeah. Here's a coupon for Eddie Bauer. If, you know, so it, it's not that, I agree that mobile advertising is an, is, is a big, it's a long shot, but. We know about I internet actually, advertising. I actually disagree with that. I'm I'm looking at this new thing which came out this week called Facebook Instant, which is a very immersive kind of way of telling stories within an app. I'm looking at Snapchat Discover, which is also a great way of telling stories within an app. It's actually surprisingly similar to Facebook Instant. Facebook Instant more or less stole a lot of stuff from Snapchat there. And I'm seeing people spend 
you know, huge amounts of time just drinking in various different types of content on their phone. I'm not at all... I mean, I agree with Jim that people don't click on ads. They don't click on ads on desktop computers. They don't click on ads on phones. Or if they do, it's just because their thumbs are too fat. But they do love to just drink in great stuff within Facebook, within but, Snapchat. And if you can create lovely sort of branded messaging campaigns, sure, you know, you, it'll you, work. You just used a very interesting word for the first time in this discussion, and that is content. Um, and it's striking to me that uh, that that the, the content part of AOL, which, by the way, exists, uh, uh, is 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 almost never mentioned by anyone talking about this except for this except deal. for except for in the context of who is going to buy Huffington right. Post now well, that well, it's clearly how, owned how, how quickly are they going to get rid of the clearly owned by someone who has no interest in in owning Huffington Post yeah uh, so so i kind of agree with you um, but then that also suggests that Verizon in order to make this work is going to need some kind of content play right i mean the 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 facebook deal depends largely on the fact that they're working with partners who are producing stuff that people want to read. Ads for ads' sake assume that there is something, and of course, on I guess with television, which is the thing that people are pushing, you know, there will be. Um, but I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I have I, this vision. I have a vision, and I don't know if it's possible. But I have this vision that when I'm in Snapchat Discover, and there are, you know, unbelievably large millions of people who spend unbelievably long amounts of time in Snapchat Discover. The, you know, when I'm swiping right to read, read the next story in Snapchat Discover, whether it's the Daily Mail or whether it's, you know, Huffington Post or whoever. It's not just um, dick pics anymore, people. Or whether it's... No, no, wait, hang on. I mean, let's be honest about this. This is Snapchat Discover. We're not even talking about people messaging here. We're talking about big publishers publishing really immersive long-form content using a great app. This is, this is you know, let's not even be, like, snarky about Snapchat. It's an incredibly powerful I didn't even medium. know about it. And, you know, you have people like Vice and everyone publishing really long, immersive things. And you, you know, swipe right and you see the next one. You swipe right, right and you see the next one. And some of those can be ads. And some of those can be really immersive ads and they sure. can have video and they can have, you know, all manner of stuff. And if... The ad tech can tell the, you know, app that I'm on a Verizon phone and this is who I am. And I'm going to be particularly interested in a story about, you know, Subarus because I'm interested in buying Subarus or something like that. Then Subaru will pay a lot of money to be able to serve that ad up to me on my phone. And I see that as the future of, you know, mobile advertising. I, I can see that. But again, you're you're talking about a place that is already a destination for people, right? The 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 Verizon AOL deal, for the most part, is just about pipes. There's nothing in the pipe. Correct. And, Correct. And so, because because the the ad tech doesn't care whether I'm right. whether I'm in the New York Times bit of Snapchat Discover or whether I'm in the Daily Mail bit. It will serve me up the same ad regardless. Yeah. But I do, you know, I I do see it as a sign that. Um, Verizon wants to sort of expand the, the type of company that it is. I mean, Stuart puts it in the context of the the thin bundling that they're doing with their with their cable offerings, right? Which is a truly revolutionary thing to su to suddenly say to customers, you don't have to buy all 180 channels that come with our package. You can tailor it to your needs. You can drop. You can add. You can you can do this this sort of thing. And I I, I guess that um, wanting to get more active about about the the video space in in mobile um, is is a next step for them. Um, but in terms of just to, to Kathy's point about uh, the knowledge that they have of their customers, I, I, the customer satisfaction with companies like Verizon is notoriously low. And and the idea that um, that that they know how to take advantage of that data is, I think, still largely theoretical. And mm -hmm. this is a common theme, I think, which we have on this podcast is that. For all of the sort of dystopian and even possibly utopian promise of big data, yeah. the fact is that most people faced with this enormous amount of data just have no idea what to do right. with it. Right. And I and I and I will say that that you know looking at a couple of pioneers in the 
digital video space, thinking of Netscape and Amazon, um, one thing that those two companies have in common is they built a superior user experience. People love Netscape. People love the uh, the the recommendation engine. People love Amazon. They love its you know easy returns. They love its wide selection. It's it's incredible reliability. The, the layout of of the Amazon website is sort of famously um, e- efficient and and that that kind of relationship to customers and and audience desires I think is 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 very successful um, what what Verizon has done to date what AOL has done to date I think is not based on but can't a, they piggyback Jim can't they say listen you know snapchat has worked it out has managed to create that incredible connection with the audience and we're just gonna serve up ads within Snapchat using our ad tech, why do they need to get the audience loyalty? Why can't they just allow Snapchat to have the audience loyalty? But so then but then what's the role of AOL? They have the ad tech which will serve this you know the right ad to the people who are using Snapchat. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't think AOL is has ever been known for optimizing the user experience. Right. So they should stick to invisible uh, pipes. I, I, I think I think in, you know, in the 90s, the the content that was created by or often curated by AOL um, did a pretty good job of, of serving its audience. Need. It was kind of walled garden within within the Internet before, um, especially before. Yeah. Before, if you wanted dick pics in the old days, you needed right. to go to, to an AOL, AOL <laughs> chat room. Um, I knew it would come back to that. AOL. AOL was a. Pioneer in instant messaging. I think that's worth that's worth message, mentioning. Uh, some some by their own technology, some by acquisition. Um, so I, I I do think that historically the company has had a, a good relationship with its customers, but that's ancient history. Yeah, you know that's just not what this company is about anymore. So we are going to move on to art in a second, but before that, we have another sponsor. This is a good day for sponsors because this one is QuickBooks Self Employed. For all of you self-employed people out there, which is a growing proportion of you, and it's many of the Sleep Money listeners, this is just a really handy way which helps you separate out your business and your personal expenses. You can track what you spent for work, what you spent on yourself. It, you know, The thing about being self-employed, and I know this from personal experience, is that you have to write these checks every, every quarter, and you hate writing large checks which you can't afford to write every quarter only to get a refund at the end of the year that's painful and you don't like that quickbook self-employed can write the check for you write the check for you send awesome. it off by e you know e-check writing technology and and make sure that you're not spending more than you need to so free 30-day trial try selfemployed.com slash money that's you don't even need the QuickBooks in there. It's just tryselfemployed.com slash money. It's good for you. All right, art. Felix, what happened this week in the art world? <laughs> so this week is one of the two big auction weeks. In fact, this is pretty, pretty much the biggest auction week um, because, you know, it com- it's combined with the Freeze Art Fair. Everyone who's anyone in the art world descends on New York this week and... One of the central things which happens in New York this week is big art auctions. And none, no art auction in the history of art auctions has been bigger than the art auctions we've seen this week. And specifically, there's this one auction which happened earlier on in the week called Looking Forward to the Past, which is kind of interesting because historically what's happened is that the auctions have come in two flavors. There was the... um, impressionist and modern auction and then there was the post-war and contemporary auction so impressionist and modern would be everyone from like the late 19th century through to 1940-ish and then post-war and contemporary would be everything you know from 1945 onwards and Christie's and Christie's is completely dominating the auction market it's not even really a fight anymore between Christie's and Sotheby's it's all about Christie's these days Christie's did something very interesting. They had their Impressionist and Modern auction. There was a $50 million Mondrian in there. It was, you know, a big deal. They had their post-war and contemporary auction, which was even bigger and made $659 million with Warhols and Rothkos and Twombly's and that kind of thing. But then they also had this thing called the Looking Forward to the Past auction, where they mashed up both together and they just found a whole bunch of really big name 
art from rel- from relatively old stuff like um, like you know the Picasso, which you probably heard of, which sold for 179 million, um, to relatively new stuff like a Peter Doig canoe painting, which sold for 26 million dollars, which is also crazy, and. They mash it all up, and, and that one made over $700 million hmm. in one evening sale. Overall, Christie's made, you know, if you add in the Sotheby's stuff, the Phillips stuff, we're talking about $3 billion of, dollars of art being sold just at auction just in one week. That doesn't even include probably another billion at the art fairs and that kind of stuff. Okay, I, I have so a ridiculous questions. question. Yeah. Okay, I'll, can I ask Please. my stupid question first? Because I... I don't understand art at all. So I, I only think of these things as objects that people for some reason buy and for some reason value. And we could go into like, what does it mean to have value? But even stupider, I would like to know how often a given piece of art gets sold. Because I feel like one way you could get these crazy auctions is if you just, hey, every time an auction comes around, you sell all the Van Goghs. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's a finite number of Van Goghs. It seems like there's always one being sold. Like, What's the churn well, on there, these there, art? There really aren't. I mean, Van Gogh is an interesting example. Yeah. Because he basically never comes up for auction. I mean, there was a flurry of them coming up in the late 80s. During There was a little sort of art market bubble in Impressionists in the late 80s. And you may recall the portrait of Dr. Gachet, which held the all-time auction record up until this week, um, which was sold in 1990 or 1991 for what in today's money is about $150 million. Um, I guess my larger question you know, is like, but, what but yeah, there was, there was sunflowers it? and irises. There were lots of very expensive Van Goghs back then in the late 80s. But then what happens is that they all wind up in museums, basically. Um, what the, the, the way the art world works is that collectors collect art and museums collect collectors. So you once you get a big collection together generally what happens is that big collection winds up getting donated to some museum or other. And then once it's in a museum, the museum doesn't what's known as deaccession very much. And so one of the reasons why post-war and contemporary art is increasingly hot these days is because basically that's all of the only good art which is still on the market and still available. No one's going to go out and sell a Vermeer. Okay, so you're saying that it's like only certain non-museum pieces are even sellable, right? And museums my, very, very rarely and sell them. I guess art. my question is, why now? Like, when do they? When do these collectors decide to sell to bigger collectors, or, or like, like, is it just because they think it now is a good time to get a good price? I mean, is there so, so, so is there like a bubble the, mentality going the on? The owner of the Picasso bought it at auction. Actually, they the it was bought at auction for thirty two million dollars in nineteen ninety seven. Okay. So that's, you know, a nice, you know, 10% a year compound annual growth rate right there. Um, You know, it's rumored to be a Saudi collector in London who, you know, basically what's happening is that Christie's is going around the world, going to every single major art collector in the world and basically buying up their work. What's happening in these auctions, and one of the reasons why no one knows whether Christie's is even making money in these multi-billion dollar auctions, is that Christie's is guaranteeing a huge you know, most of the big lots. They're saying, we will guarantee you a certain amount of money for this painting, no matter what it actually sells for in the sale room. So you, so the seller loses a lot of the uncertainty that there used to be around selling at auction. And Christie's is taking a lot of the financial risk itself. So they're really good at it. But does that mean that they're like ruining their own business in the future because they're like, you know, accelerating the natural life of this painting that it's going to end up in a museum sooner? I, I mean, I don't know. Is, is there any reason to believe that the new um, buyer of the Picasso is more likely to donate it to a museum than the old owner of the Picasso? These things, you know, change hands in the private market until they don't. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get back to this question of the the channels through which these auctions take place. You said that historically it was done in these two kind of, you know, separate eras. Uh, yeah, and with, that, with World War II in the middle. With World yeah. War II in the middle and and that and that somehow by combining them, they they what? They 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 created a synergy that wasn't there before. I, I'm I'm fascinated by this. This well but, so this is exactly so a lot of the new collectors um really just dealing contemporary art, post one contemporary art. And um what Christie's decided was that if they could mix it up a bit, they might be able to get some of these newer collectors interested in people like Picasso. It's not like Picasso is unattractive to people who normally buy 
Peter Doig, is that they just never really appear in the same place. And Christie's has been and it's, very it's, interesting at like creating these kind of the high profile theme sales mm-hmm. rather than just doing it chronologically, saying we're going to throw a bunch of interesting art together and see what happens. And they seem to be, it seems to be working and quite well. Are the buyers that distinct? So if you go to one auction traditionally, you're not the same guy who goes to the other auction? Uh, well, certainly, you know, the buyers of old masters are not going to be the same as the buyers of. Yeah, Dan Colin. Uh-huh. Until, um, until now, it sounds um, like. And, and now, you know, it's there's still distinct um, collectors in, in different eras. I can see, for instance, the idea that Peter Doig and Picasso might be bought by the same person. But it's true that art is driven by connoisseurship, and there's a limit to how much you can know about. Right. right. So if you know about one bit of the art world, that's the bit that you collect. Right. Um, is my impression is that the market is highly cyclical. Is that are there is there academic research on this of how how the market tracks the overall economy? Well, I mean, so the last big bubble, as I said, was the impressionists in the late eighties um, and early nineties, um, and then it kind of went away, and now we have this big bubble in 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 contemporary art. Mm. Um, is it fair to say that there was like this economic boom back then and then nothing happened and now there's an economic boom now? I don't know. I mean, there are there, there's a very broad sense in which the art market tracks inequality because what we're talking about here is, you know, $100 million paintings. And frankly, you need to have an insane amount of money to even sure. think about being able to sure. afford a $100 million painting. So, you know, the more inequality you have, the more people... Can, can play at those levels. And I heard that one of the things that's actually kind of different and not cyclical maybe is the international nature of the buyers. Is that, is that something that you've heard about? Like that- so this is, we've been hearing this for a few years. It, it was um, the Russians for a long time, and now everyone's talking about the Chinese as like the new big buyers in the market. Um, and it's all based on sort of rumor and hype. There's certainly big Russian collectors, there's certainly big Chinese collectors, although, again, just anecdotally, the Chinese collectors have been pulling back a bit with this crackdown on corruption in mainland China. Um, So it's hard to tell. The fact is that the old school US and European billionaires are still the heart of the market. They might not be the marginal price setter every single time, but they are the people really providing, you know, the cash. You have... They they even make a market. There's this fantastic quote from Steve Wynn, the you know very American casino magnate, um, who bid on the Picasso, and he said, you know, he'd bid at 125 million, and he said 125 million is where I would buy it. 179 million is where I would sell it. He had, like, has a bid offer spread on this. Yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah. It seems, going back to your inequality comment, it seems like there's this phrase floating around. I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter, vanity capital. No. That this is the idea is that there's a huge, because of sort of increased inequality, there's like this huge amount of money just going towards status symbol, period. And the art market seems to be like the quintessential version of the vanity capital. And and some of it is. And then one of, but one of the interesting things is that, you know, there was this post-war Italian formalist called Anselmo, who had did a series of five or six pieces where he just took an iron bar and wrapped, you know, and, and wrapped a piece of fabric around the middle of the iron bar and twisted it until it was very twisty and then put hangs it on the wall where it's sort of twisted up and then it's called torsione, it's called torsion. Um, and that, one of those just sold for $6.4 million. You know, it looks like an iron bar hanging on the wall. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's an important work of art. It's actually a really good work of art. And it's not clear that that kind of thing is is vanity. Maybe it is to, a, to an extent. And certainly, you know, the big um, Rothkos and Freuds and Bacons and that kind of thing. Uh, you it's know, it's instant cut, cut rate vanity. It's sort of a bargain, bargain basement <laughs> But there's a lot of buyers a, and a there's, a lot of, there's a lot of buyers with money and there's a lot of buyers with highly educated art consultants saying this is really important, you need it. And 
just the amount of money, you know, as I say, like $26 million for Peter Doig, $37 million for Basquiat, $43 million for Twombly, $30 million for Christopher Wall. And these aren't all-time masterpieces. These are just good examples of these people's work. And you're like, wow. Okay. Um, let's do the numbers. Jim, you know about this, right? I, I do. You do. I come with a number. You've come with a number. Good my, job. My number is $91 million. And that is the dollar amount of Avon stock that traded oh, on Thursday. I love this Good story. story. Such a weird story. Um, you know, look, markets are subject to rumors all the time. Um, and this week there was a rumor that Avon... It wasn't Avon, a rumor. It was an SEC I'm filing. getting to that. I'm getting to that. <laughs> there was a rumor uh, that, that Avon was, was, going to, uh, was going to sell itself. And uh, the, the, the market did what the markets usually do in those situations. It bid the stock up. Um, it turns out there was an SEC filing from a company called PTG Capital Partners Limited. Uh, and so everybody... Not to be confused with... With TPG, TPG, which had bid on them, I think, uh, in 2010, uh, or Avon sold its stake in Avon Japan to that to that firm in 2010, um, and so this this made the market go crazy for a while, for about 20 minutes, and the stock went 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 way up. Um, and then Avon said, "But well, we have received no such offer." And then it, it seems that this firm actually doesn't even exist. Uh, and so someone has walked off with a pile of money made in a really short period of time. Um, it's the kind of thing that I think you know the SEC will get all over. Will they? catch the right people. I have no way of knowing. But the SEC but can trace relatively easily who sold the Avon stock in absolutely. that 20-minute period, and they can just like start looking to see how also, many of those pres- can Presumably, someone has to sign the document that was filed. You know, I mean, I, I think there is a trail Can there. I just say, though, that I, th- I think it was pretty sneaky because, as I understand it, the actual document had lots of misspellings. Yes, that's right. So the anybody who wanted to hide their, their tracks would be just like, I sold it because I knew it was a fraud. It was Obvious. I'm just saying, like, the SEC has some real work to do because it is kind of obviously a fraud. Yeah. And let this be a lesson to you, Slate Money listeners. If you hold individual stocks, then this is how you have to, what you have to do to make money is be watching the stock all day, every day, and then seeing it spike on some stupid press release and then read the press release and realize that it's complete bullshit and then sell the stock within that 20 minute period while it's still trading at an an elevated level it seems seems like more than most people will do more than more than most people are capable of you should just buy a picasso you should just buy a picasso (laughs) well okay so here's here's my number my number is one billion dollars um, can, you which, say it, can you say it like this? <laughs> one can I, can billion dollars. I, I, will, I will put my pinky in my mouth and say one billion dollars, which is even more than the price of a Picasso. Um, one billion dollars is the amount of the box office gross of Avengers Age of Ultron. The really? amount that it has taken in just in cinemas just in the past two weeks. Holy moly. Whoa. Really? A billion dollars? Really? A billion dollars. Wow. Uh, oh, I missed that. It's, and it's, no one even likes this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is just, this is just, you know, the, you know, May blockbuster comic book thing. It's the sequel to the last Avengers movie, which that itself no was a liked, sequel to yeah. a whole bunch of Iron Man movies. And it's just the latest in the series. And then, you know, comic book nerds are all going to go and see it because they have to. And it's better than, you know, the Thor movie. And it's not as good as, you know, the other. It's a, it's just a pretty middle of the road comic book movie. Yeah. But it's I totally you see agree. It? a billion dollars. You know, the truth I is, I almost it. saw it. You know, and I don't even see movies, but no. because I have teenage boys and I have a six-year-old boy and they're all kind of like, hey, maybe we, maybe we're obligated to see this movie too. And then I'd be like, maybe I'm obligated to see this movie. And we escaped, but I'm just saying, I can see it. They've done an amazing job at making like an entire population feel obligated to see a movie. And, and it just, I mean, to realize, just to underscore here, we're talking two weeks. Yeah. It's worth so, a billion dollars. By the time all is said and done and they've got the video on demand and they've got the action figures and stuff... This one movie is going to be... I know it's important to adjust these things for inflation, but I assume that at a billion dollars in two weeks, it is the box office record holder. No, I don't even think it is. And this is actually global. So the U.S. part of that is about a third. Ah, okay. 
But it's still over it's three, no, still it's a lot 350 money, million or so in the US. What was and about Avatar? Million in, I don't know. It's all about yeah. Avatar. I don't, I, yeah. So, but that's, that's, the, that's the amount of money that is in franchises. We don't care about, you know, narrative anymore. It's just get the big name characters up on the screen and make, make your money. I'm going to go see Mad Max instead. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next Star Wars movie. Um, my number is 76%. It's uh, ten. Do you know that uh, of all the people spe- of teaching, instructing at higher education places like colleges and universities in this country, seventy six percent are non tenure track, mm. and more than fifty percent are actually part time. Part time instruction at a college or university is hard work. Yeah. Does that include community colleges? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All higher education, but um, it's just, it's reached that. Says, says Kathy O'Neill, the former part-time instructor at <laughs> Columbia University. <laughs> no, I've never been a part-time instructor. And I'm telling you, like, part-time instructors teach more than tenured professors. And they get paid a lot less. And they have no security. It's a rough business. And it's growing. I mean, obviously, I, I'm telling you 76%. I don't know what it was 10 years ago, but it was a lot less than 76%. On which, mildly depressing note, well, you know, it's... It, yeah. So, so what were you saying? That higher education is the new nail salon? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually not the biggest proponent of tenure, but I'm just saying, like, it's not, it's, it's correlated with terrible working di- conditions, and no, not, not nail salon level working conditions. These people are typically, uh, they either have green cards or, or passports, so they're still doing okay. Um, so, in any case, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for listening to Slate Money. Subscribe to the show by searching for Slate Money in iTunes. Write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. Give a big clappy thank you to Audrey Quinn, who once again has turned a mildly chaotic recording session into something amazing. And and to also to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, to Andy Bowers, the executive producer, and especially to Jim Ledbetter. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jim. Who's going to plug his podcast one more time? Listen to Ink Uncensored, the best show on the Panoply Network, among many, many good <laughs> shows. You can look, look at all of them at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And, and of course, we will link to Ink Uncensored from Slate Money. And maybe one day, Jim will return to Slate and, and link to Slate Money from Ink. Absolutely. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.